friends were looking back over their long and eventful lives and reflecting on how they would like to be remembered at their funerals. One of them says, I want my priest to say, here lies a woman who was a good wife, a loving mother and a loyal friend. The next one says, I want the pastor to say, this man was a skilled worker, a respected professional and an accomplished leader. And the third friend says, well, at my funeral, I want the preacher to say, look, she's moving. (laughs) On the one hand... Uh, What they say about us uh, when we're gone shouldn't matter. Uh, After all, we're not around to hear it. But it does, doesn't it? We have a built-in need to leave something. A memory, a legacy, a dynasty even. We want to make the world a better place. Dull is the life that serves only its own needs. Stunted is the soul that is blind to the generations that follow. There is so much good in the heart of King David. If you have heard any of his story this summer, as we have read it week by week, I hope that you have found some goodness, some courage, some faith, some beauty of vision, some passion for God. He really does love God. He shows it again today. Oh, but just in case you think he's too good to be true, make sure you're here next week. Now, what was I saying? Oh yes, he really does love God. And this morning, it's all over the place. His passionate love for God in all its glory. We find him this morning living in his Jerusalem palace made of cedar. In the lap of luxury. God, meanwhile, is living symbolically in a small wooden chest the Ark of the Covenant, in a tent. And to David, this just doesn't seem right. And you must agree, he has a point. So, he reasons, if I'm living in a royal palace, then God should reside in an even grander one. I'm going to build him a home that is fit for the creator of the universe. A temple where God can live and where he can be worshipped as he deserves. Now David has a chaplain to the court, the prophet Nathan. And Nathan dutifully endorses David's idea. But that night God speaks to Nathan. And says, wait a minute, I don't live in houses. I have been with your people for generations and I've never had a building. I'm grateful for the thought, truly, but no thank you. I don't need a temple. But David, because you have been thinking of my honour and have desired to build me a house, I will give you a house. Not a physical one, but a familial one. A dynasty. Your house shall stand forever. Your throne shall be established for all time. 
I need to tell you about a church I found online. It's not the largest church in the country. In fact, it measures just 21 feet wide, 32 feet long, and it has room for just 40 seats. The design is gothic. It's that 19th century dark stone with stained glass windows, bold arches and decorative pillars. And you can hire it for your wedding for a few hundred dollars. Uh, But none of that is what makes it worthy of mention in this sermon. The clue to its uniqueness is its price tag. You can buy it for $42,000. So, what's wrong with a Gothic church building that you can buy for 42 grand? Well, it's plastic and inflatable. Let me read to you from the website inflatablechurch.com. Innovations Extreme proudly present the Inflatable Church. Tie the knot anywhere you wish, you decide. We will provide a day to remember. It goes without saying that the Inflatable Church was the invention of an eccentric Englishman. Innovations Extreme are now doing a roaring trade, hiring it out for weddings. But brides beware, no stilettos. On the company's website, there's a video of a wedding taking place in the inflatable church in Southern California. Because it may have been invented by an eccentric Englishman, but it takes Californians to truly apply a concept in the best possible taste. When I read this, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. This is fake church. It's a pathetic, no-cost imitation of the real thing. But the more I think about it, the more I wonder if this mad Brit has unknowingly produced a genuine vision of the Christian church and unintentionally discovered the reason God told David not to build him a temple You see, the beauty of the inflatable church is that you can let it down and take it wherever you go. If you want it ten feet to the left, you can have it. If you want it a thousand miles away, you can have that too. The inflatable church moves. It is the church in motion. It's the church that's going somewhere. It's just passing through. It's on a journey to wherever the owner wants to take it. The church is a people, not a building. A people who are on the move. We are the people of the tent. We worship a God who lives not in houses, but in hearts. But settling down is much more appealing, isn't it? And David longed for it. Predictability routine, a regular pattern to life, including the spiritual life. Build God a house. Put some walls on it so the wind can't chill him. Place some windows in it so he can look out. A roof on the top so he won't get wet. Place a big door on the front with a lock so we know where he is and can keep him at bay. 
Oh, I don't want to rubbish David and doubt his motives. As I said, I think he did this out of love for God. But it does call us to question what we lost when God's people settled down. When we stopped being people on a journey and became people of the land ended our pilgrimage and built houses, took down the tent and constructed a temple. For one thing, it made it easy for us to swallow a lie, a grotesque, cruel, deadly lie, one that causes us so much pain, the lie that we belong here, that the world is our home, that this is where our eyes should be fixed, that what we accumulate here actually matters. We are inflatable disciples and we know we have no home here. We are captivated by a vision of another world just around the corner on the other side of death. And to that land we travel, sometimes slowly, fearfully at others, periodically doubting, falling down and regaining our feet, even taking the wrong road before finding the way once more. But we move There's the intention to go from here to somewhere more glorious. Even if we don't know where God is leading us, we still move imperfectly but steadily following his call. Many years ago, the influential radio preacher Charles Fuller was nearing the end of his Sunday broadcast and told his audience that the following week he would be preaching on the subject of heaven. Before the following weekend arrived, he received a letter from a terminally ill listener. Next Sunday you are to talk about heaven. I am interested in that land because I have held a clear title to a piece of property there for over 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. The donor purchased it for me at tremendous sacrifice. I am not holding it for speculation, since the title is not transferable. For more than half a century, I have been sending materials out of which the greatest architect has been building a home for me, which will never need to be remodelled nor repaired, because it will suit me perfectly, individually, and will never grow old. Termites can never undermine its foundations, for they rest on the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it. Floods cannot wash it away. No locks or bolts will ever be placed upon its doors. There is a valley of deep shadow between the place where I live in California and that to which I shall journey in a very short time. I cannot reach my home in that city of gold without passing through this dark valley of shadows. But I am not afraid, because the best friend I ever had went through the same valley long, long ago and drove away all its gloom. He has stuck by me through thick and thin since we first became acquainted 55 years ago. 
I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday, but I have no assurance that I shall be able to do so. My ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey and no permit for baggage. Yes, I am all ready to go and I may not be here while you are talking next Sunday, but I shall meet you there someday. Remember when Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was just passing through, and his inflatable followers are doing so too. So how important is it to leave a legacy? Two years ago, I researched my family tree. I knew very little about my grandparents before this research, and I still don't know very much. As for my great-grandparents, I could find almost nothing about them. They seem to have left no mark on the world, no achievements worthy of being preserved in history, no books written, no ideas incubated, no projects that shaped people's lives, no service that made the world a better place. And I thought, is that it? Is this what my life will amount to? I felt the despair of the psalm. The span of our life is 70 years, perhaps in strength even 80, yet the sum of them is but labour and sorrow, for they pass away quickly and we are gone. I did not even know the names of my great-grandparents before I did my research. How is that possible, that within 100 years no one even remembers your name? The cremator's furnace reduces your memory to ash. There's a fire we dare not consider. There's a flame we fear. What new life can rise from this blaze? What phoenix can soar from this pyre of oblivion? What plant can grow in the soil fertilised by these barren ashes? We can create legacies. We can, like David, receive dynasties of grace, houses of blessedness. As Christians, one of the finest and most beautiful legacies we can leave is the story of our faith. The scriptures are full of instructions to tell the story to the children. Tell it to the children. Remember the great things God did for you. Talk about them on the road. Gossip them at the meal table. Tell it to the children. I'm going to give you a piece of practical advice. Record your story of faith. Write it down somewhere. What God means to you. Why you have been a follower of Christ. What comfort or hope that has given you over the years. What answers to prayer you've received. It doesn't have to be beautiful prose, but it will be profoundly fruitful legacy. And so 50 years after your death, they will say, Oh yes, great-grandma Susan, she was a Christian. I've got that journal where she wrote about her faith. 
Great Uncle Trevor, he had a story. I need to find those papers again. So work on it. Create your dynasty of faith. Even long after your funeral, someone will point at you and cry, Look, they're moving. Amen.